Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Romani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? I've been thinking about diet culture this week. It's the beginning of the year, and a lot of people have a New Year's resolution to lose weight, get trim, be thin. And also, we're especially bombarded right now with messages about health and weight loss goals. And of course, in our society, thinness is equated with beauty. It's equated with moral values such as hard work, self-control, good decision making, and it's also associated with health. All of which are not true. But in particular, I was kind of inspired to think about this a bit further by the nutritionist Jessica Wilson, who I follow on Instagram. And who recently published an article called Five Myths About Nutrition. I'll get into the article maybe a bit later. It was really interesting to see that she wrote about the process of getting the article published, and she also published the reactions to the article. Both of which, to say the least, were hard. First of all, she was asked to write the article by the Washington Post. After she appeared in the New York Times, and because she, as a writer of color, is aware of tokenism, racism, and what happens when you question people's belief systems, she asked the paper's editorial staff specifically if they were willing to have hard conversations, if they were willing to challenge their beliefs about nutrition, if they were willing to let go of their good or bad ideas about food. And if they were willing to sit with comments questioning her qualifications, because she will not paint all food with a broad label, and especially the label unhealthy, and whether they were willing to center the experiences of marginalized people. So after this phone call, she was told yes to all those questions, but she still had quite a process to actually publish the article. She had to really stand her ground on that question of. Labeling all processed foods as unhealthy, and in addition, she had paragraphs about fat phobia, racism, and the impact of this on what we see as healthy completely cut. So, like I said, the reaction to the article was also quite severe in the comments and on Twitter, with people just so offended and outraged and questioning every single thing that she said. Also, her qualifications, of course, she is a qualified dietitian. She went to university, all this kind of stuff. But anyway, that was kind of really telling in itself. As one reader pointed out, as evidenced by the comments here, Americans are crazy obsessed with food. It is no longer just energy for the body; it has all sorts of values attached to it. I mean, I would say not just Americans, but all of us. Everyone is obsessed with food right now. And as Wilson herself pointed out, her work and work like hers that questions long-held beliefs about food and bodies. May threaten folks' values and identities, and when somebody threatens the way we work, live, or have organized our entire lives, strong reactions may follow. And that's kind of what I really wanted to talk about today. How do we see food? What are the structural, cultural reasons behind this and behind diet culture? When we started discussing this as a topic, one of the first things I thought of was the controversy that happened. I believe it was still at the end of last year around Lizzo. When this happened, I remember we were texting each other because we both could not figure out what had happened because all we saw was everyone's reactions, and we were like, "Wait, what did Lizzo say? What did Lizzo do?" 
And it actually, in fact, turns out that Lizzo had posted a photo of herself. I believe she's only wearing underwear in the photo. And in the comments, she had talked about detoxing, about being on diets. And this set everyone off because, of course, Lizzo was sort of hailed as the poster child for body positivity and loving yourself. And I think that this is a very black and white view of body positivity. Also kind of a shitty thing to hold this black woman up as like your moral compass. This is a lot of weight to put on someone and why why does she have to be a symbol for something? Why can't she just live her life? There's this unrealistic expectation that if you're body positive, you are in no way, you know, you can't fall back on your insecurities. You always have to love yourself. It's a silly view of what it means to love yourself and body positivity. For those of you who don't know who Lizzo is, she's a singer. She's also a big black woman and she posts, you know, pictures of herself on Instagram. And because she's big, I think she's become this kind of body positivity icon, which is interesting in itself because her weight still defines her and is the most important thing that everyone focuses when they see her. It's a bit like Adele got so much press for losing weight. She's an amazing singer. So can we just stop please talking about Adele's weight? Maybe just talk about her music and her artistic career. But Jessica Wilson, who I now really love, (laughs) has a very interesting take on this on her Instagram. And this is what she writes. She writes on the mammification of black women. Black women do not exist to make white women feel better about themselves and their bodies. Black women may have been instrumental in your healing. We are still trying to get ours. If you all, white women, feel the need to take self-care because a black woman chose to drink smoothies for a while because she'd had a shit month, please ask why this feels personal. As you're focused on self-care this moment and reflect on the care that black women have been denied for centuries. Also, as Lizzo noted, why you all need to assume that this was about weight loss? Are you projecting something of your own onto a fat black woman's body again? Lizzo doesn't need to be invited by white women in the body positive spaces to process. She's good, boo. What about you? And just to reiterate, if you didn't see what the Lizzo thing was, a lot of people in the body positive space, which is a lot of white women Instagrammers, were really disappointed in her somehow. And there was a lot of judgment there as well for participating in diet culture or what they said was participating in diet culture. Yeah, I mean, there is this thing about, you know, putting... Lizzo's been put up on a pedestal and just by existing and just by being a fat woman in public, her body is commented upon, she's used as an example, like she can't just exist and live her life, she has to be an example for everything. There's actually a word for this, it's called concern trolling, and concern trolling is where people will comment on a woman's weight but under the guise of being concerned for her health. So a lot of the times when you see people who don't fit into, you know, society's ideal version of what a woman looks like, they'll often post with concerns surrounding this woman's health. To quote an article by Kelsey Miller called, Are You Worried About This Woman's Health? She writes, Concern troll is not exclusive to weight-related content. It pops up on cancer blogs, parenting forums, and even in political sphere. But when it comes to overweight people, there's a particular insidious righteousness. 
Rather than launch an outright attack, the concerned trolls often posit a hypothetical question. Personally, the concerned trolls think you're great. They're just looking out for you and for the nation's kids. They're just, you know, a little worried. You know that feeling when you show up all dressed up for dinner and your friend tilts her head and asks, Are you tired, sweetie? It's like that, except worse, because the concerned troll is not your friend. So Lizzo's just existing, living her life, and she's been pigeonholed in this way. And all of a sudden, everyone's really worried about her. And I think that, yeah, she was posting about detoxing, and everyone was reacting, like, in the opposite way, because, like, normally concerned trolls are, like, worried about your health. But in this case, it was body-positive concerned trolls who were commenting. But at the same time, it's just so, like, it's still unwarranted comments on someone's body and their diet and you're not actually worried about her. You're just worried about how it affects you and sort of like the ideal version of her that you've created in your head. Yeah, in the end, it's still defining women by their bodies, policing their bodies in one way or another. But this concern for health is also very interesting when it comes to diet culture, because there is this myth that health and thinness are connected and they are simply not. Absolutely. So one of the things that has actually been hailed as the measurement of health is the BMI. So the BMI was first used by a Belgian polymath called Adolphe Cullet. I'm so sorry. I'm apologizing to everyone who speaks French. I butchered that. Anyway, he devised this equation in 1832 in his quest to define the normal man. So like in terms of everything from his average arm strength to the age at which he married. So this project had absolutely nothing to do with obesity-related diseases. He was just trying to use some sort of equation to describe the standard proportions of a human built. A human man, one should emphasize. So the ratio of weight to height in an average adult man. So he sort of collected data from several hundred countrymen, and he found that the weight varied not in direct proportion to height, but in proportion to the square of height. But anyway... Then in 1972, psychology professor and obesity researcher Ansel Keys published his Indices of Relative Weight and Obesity, which was a study where he used 7,400 men in five countries, and he examined which of the weight-height formulas matched up best with each subject's body fat percentage, as measured more directly. And it turned out that the best indicator came from this Belgian polymath, which was weight divided by height squared. And so he renamed it the body mass index. The problem with BMI is, is that it's very approximate, but it doesn't take other things in consideration. For example, BMI is a surrogate measure of body fatness because it measures excess weight rather than excess body fat. It does not take factors such as age, sex, ethnicity, and muscle mass into consideration, which can all influence the relationship between your BMI and body fat. Also, the one about muscle mass is particularly interesting because if you actually use the BMI formula, a lot of high-performing athletes would actually fall under the obese category. Vox does a really great video I highly recommend you all watch where they go into a lot of detail about why BMI is wrong. But they use this example of Marshawn Lynch, who is a football player. He is a running back, which means he has to be very active and fit. And if you do the formula weight divided by height squared, he comes out as being obese. 
And actually, on a daily basis, only 30% of the energy that you burn is up to you because the largest amount of calories you burn comes from your resting metabolism and also from the energy you use to break down food. So while exercise obviously is good and you should exercise, exercise being like the end-all and be-all of weight loss, keeping in mind, of course, that pushing an agenda of weight loss is also problematic, but this was started as a PR strategy by companies who have an interest in you continuing to consume their products. So a really great example of this is Coca-Cola, which has been aligning itself with this exercise message since the 1920s. The idea is that you can drink all the soda you want as long as you work out. This is why they have strategically placed sports equipment in a lot of their ads and sought out athletes as spokespeople for their products. Coca-Cola is really interesting because also, for example... One of the things that Wilson talked about in her article, one of the myths, is this eight cups of water a day myth. This myth about health actually came from messaging from groups sponsored by bottled water companies such as Hydration for Health and Nestle Waters, which backed studies aiming to show that people were not hydrating enough. However, a literature review published by the American Physiological Society found no scientific evidence for the eight cups a day recommendation. So many factors, like you say, influence an individual's hydration needs, including climate, physical activity, sweat rate, body weight, and hormones. So she quotes Mayo Clinic as saying, no single formula actually fits everyone. On this topic, on cultural history and science and consumerism and how it all overlaps. A lot of diet culture has been, in recent years since post-war, kind of been divided into two camps. It's the sugar versus fat camp. And there is a really interesting article in The New Yorker about this, which we'll link to in our newsletter. The writer goes into a sort of history of how this like campaign against you know sugar versus fats came from two different lobbies. So in 1943, when sugar was dismissed by the government and medical organizations as empty calories and was being rationed as part of the war effort, sugar companies formed a trade association to kind of set the record straight, as they said. And it devised this two-pronged strategy. It supported scientists who endorsed the notion that sugar was a valuable source of dietary energy without any specific health risks. And then it mobilized these experts in public relations campaigns. So a prominent Madison Avenue firm was hired and they just spread it out to all consumers about basically the safety of sugar as a food. So among the scientists that they supported was Ansel Keys who was the Mediterranean diet pioneer, and his work influenced dietary guidelines of the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association. Fred Stair, who is an influential nutritionist at Harvard, received not only research funding, but a donation of more than a million dollars to build a new department from General Foods Corporation. So their products include Kool-Aid and Tang, and he proclaimed that it was not even remotely true that modern sugar consumption relates to poor health. During their time, Taubes and Stare appeared on talk shows on more than 200 radio stations to dismiss anti-sugar dialogue. And then there was a spread of diet crazes and obesity anxiety in the 50s that spurred this growth in diet sodas and artificial sweeteners. 
And so the sugar industry again responded. And what they did was they really discredited artificial sweeteners such as saccharin and cyclamates. And it funded research which managed to find adverse effects from consumptions of cyclamates in rats. But they achieved this by giving rats a really high dose, which is the equivalent in human terms of 530 cans of fresca. Nonetheless, the FDA eventually banned cyclamates as a health risk, even though it kind of wasn't. Yeah, we go into more detail in our episode, Diets Dudes and What's the Difference Between Diet Coke and Coke Zero. It's episode 30. And in this episode, we sort of go into the gender difference, how things are marketed towards us and how the diet industry sort of very strategically focuses on women and what does this mean for men. So you should all go listen. Looking at how diets have developed and the history of it is really interesting. And in fact, a lot of weight loss fads from the past centuries kind of include precedents for all the main contemporary diets. For example, in 1825, a French lawyer, Jean Alphemy Zulat Savarin, wrote a famous treatise called The Physiology of Taste, in which he contended that true carnivores and herbivores did not get fat. It was only when one ingested grain, which is basically bread and carbs, that the trouble started. And you can see how that developed basically into the Atkins diet more than a century and a half later. And a lot of these diets that we have right now, paleo and raw and all of that. So again, going back to this article by Wilson, she says... One fad diet dictates that raw foods in their natural state have more nutritional values. They say that any foods prepared at temperatures higher than 118 degrees kill off fragile enzymes and stuff like that. And that cooking denatures those enzymes and destroys vitamins and minerals and proteins. However, she does point out that cooking with heat or thermal processing improves the bioavailability of many nutrients and phytochemicals such as the lycopene and tomatoes. So foods including sweet potatoes, dry beans, grains and rhubarb also have nutrients that are better absorbed and digested when cooked. And different methods of cooking can have different effects on the overall nutrient density. So for example, boiling vegetables can reduce their water-soluble vitamins such as thiamine and vitamin C, but steaming, baking and stir-frying can minimize the loss. So it's more complex than people think. But it's really funny when you think about, you know, all these people just eating raw foods or just eating, you know, no carbs at all, or just meat or just fat or no sugar at all. I think if you put these behaviors into the context of what dieting was before, when we look at the past and what people did, For example, you know, Lord Byron swore by vinegar and sometimes he ingested just a single raisin a day supplemented with a glass of brandy. Or women in the 19th century stuffed themselves into near suffocating corsets to achieve this hourglass figure with an unnaturally thin waist. Or they consumed soap, chalk, pickles, camphor tea, grapefruit, which was thought to contain fat dissolving enzymes. Potassium acetate, which is a diuretic, and ipecac, which induces vomiting. And they tried sweating their fat away in rubber suits or squeezing it away in pressurized reducing machines. I don't think we've come really any further in sort of sensible ways of approaching our bodies and foods. It's still a continuation of all these fads and all this kind of stuff. And just to be clear, reducing or restricting your diet has been shown to just simply not 
work. Yeah, I mean, someone's physical appearance is definitely not an indicator of their health or even how they're eating. Anyone who knows me knows that I have weird eating habits. Like I will just sometimes eat chocolate as a meal and yet nobody feels any need to comment on the way that I look. I also think that a lot of times when we talk about diets, we forget to take external factors into consideration. So, you know, how many women have you met who have started taking the pill and it's caused them to gain a bunch of weight? I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently where she was talking about how in times when she has been severely depressed has been the times when her weight has yo-yoed the most. And when she has been the unhappiest and she lost a lot of weight was the time when a lot of people felt the need to comment on her weight in a positive way, applauding her for her weight loss, being like, oh, wow, you look so good. And her response was like, thanks, I'm severely depressed and don't want to be alive right now. But thank you for thinking that the byproduct of my depression is a really great thing. Yeah, this real lack of a full picture is the problem with most diet books and popular science books about diet because they all give a simple answer. It's like, do this one thing, yet cut out all fats or all carbs or how many meals you eat or eat only within a certain amount of time. You know, you fix, you do this one thing and everything in your whole life will be better. In the New Yorker article, the writer points out, in laboratories, it's a different story. And it sometimes seems the more sophisticated nutritional science becomes, the less any single factor predominates and the less sure we are of anything. So today's findings regularly turn over yesterday's promising hypotheses. For example, a trial in 2003 led by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania compared an Atkins diet, high in fat and low in carbohydrates, with a low-fat, high-carb and low-calorie one. And after a year, there were no significant differences in how much weight the people in each group had lost or the levels of their blood lipids, including their LDL cholesterol, which is the primary concern for heart attack or stroke. So in a follow-up study in 2010, participants who followed either low-carb or high-fat diet ended up losing about the same amount of weight after two years, and it was impossible to predict which diet would lead to significant weight loss in any given individual, as most dieters know anyway that sustaining weight loss often fails after the initial success. Another thing that's often not taken into consideration is different body types, different genders, different ethnicities. In the New York Times article, is American dietetics a white bread world? They do address the fact that most research programs and articles completely ignore non-Western cuisines or imply that they are unhealthy. And the profession places a lot of emphasis on consuming less and not understanding individual eating habits. They say in this article that the entire field perpetuates this idea of thinness and gender normativity. I just want to end the episode on a quote by Ray Earle from My Mad Fat Diary. She writes, I can't just eat in front of people. If I eat unhealthy food, then people will think, oh, look at that fat cow. No wonder she got the size she is. And if I eat healthy food, then people think, who are you trying to kid love? You didn't get that size by eating salads. And on that note, here are our three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, next time you post a meme or you see a meme online making fun of someone's weight, for example, Donald Trump, 
think twice about reposting it because I don't really care about Donald Trump's feelings and the chances that Donald Trump is ever going to see the meme are very slim. But you know who will see the meme? A friend or a family member who you don't know is struggling with their body image or has recently gained or lost a lot of weight and feels bad about it. And they will see it. And all you're doing is telling them that you think it's okay to make fun of the way people look, even if they are Donald Trump. Instead of following the eight cups of water a day rule, some body cues can help you gorge your fluid needs, such as urine color and sweat trait. And it's worth noting that when we feel thirsty, we're often mildly dehydrated. So don't gulp down glasses of water at a time. Take sips throughout the day, and that can lead to better absorption. And thing three, keep in mind that racism, fat phobia, the patriarchy, and capitalism are the societal structures that influence how we view food and our bodies. So next time you have a thought about your body or a thought concerning food, try to be conscious of those underlying factors. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube for news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references and other geeky inspiration. Subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.